So, we are continuing our study, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And um, just, a, just a little recap from last week. Last week was kind of this long story. I did get my podcast working again. So, the first two weeks, those episodes are on the RUF at Belmont podcast. Uh, I haven't figured out how to get on Spotify yet, but it's on iTunes and all the, those kind of places where you can get uh, Apple podcasts. Um, so, what we talked about last week, basically Paul's telling this long story um, to basically make two points. Uh, and, and I think this guy, Matthew Harmon, his commentary kind of summarized it. He basically is wanting to say, I'm not dependent upon the other apostles for the gospel. Like, Christ has appeared to me and, and shown me the true gospel. I have met with the other apostles and they and I agree that we're on the same page. So I'm not derivative from them. I'm not basing what I'm saying upon what they've said. I'm not like their junior apprentice, okay? And why is he feeling a need to say that? He's feeling a need to say that because the people in these churches in this region who originally had come to understand the good news of the gospel and had come to trust in Christ and thus have a relationship with the one only true God, after Paul had left and moved on to other areas to work, some false teachers had come in and said, you know, you guys are Gentiles, which means not Jewish, and Paul didn't really tell you everything you need to know to be fully pleasing to God. You really actually need to adopt some of these Jewish practices like circumcision and how you eat, what you eat, how you dress, all these sorts of things, because God has revealed in his law how he wants us to live. It's all in the Old Testament, and we should all be obeying that. But in essence, what Paul is saying is, that's not a gospel. That's actually not good news. That when you feel like you have to add your rule-keeping to what Jesus did in order to earn the smile of God, or even to keep the smile of God, you have fallen away from grace and you've fallen away from the gospel. And it's a big, serious deal. Like I said the first week, this is the most angry letter in the New Testament. Remember I said when Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, who literally are having orgies at the Lord's Supper. It's a big deal. <laughs> That's a big deal. I can't imagine if you went to a church and that was going on, okay? That's what's going on in the Corinthians, and he still finds things to commend about them. The Galatians, the Galatians are basically um, trying to add all these extra rules to become holier. And he's more angry with them that he doesn't even commend anything about them, which is a pretty big deal. So, um, I, as I said, it's actually good for us that we have this angry letter because one of the best ways you can figure out what people really care about is what makes them angry. And there's a lot of different opinions about what the early church believed and maybe ways things got garbled and distorted. But this letter actually gives us a really clear picture of what mattered the most because it's the angriest letter. All right. So in the middle of the story, I cut off at chapter two, verse 10 last week because verses 11 through 15 kind of all hold together in one little section. And so tonight we're going to look at that. And then we're going to pick up the rest of chapter 2 next week. 
chapter 2, the rest of chapter 2 talks about distortions and misunderstandings about faith, including one of the most uh, known but misunderstood verses in the book of Galatians, which is, uh, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? You know this verse? You probably have misunderstood it. So come back next week if you want to sound out what I'm talking about. Because um, it has nothing to do with Christ replacing us, um, but everything to do with faith. So we'll talk about that next week. Tonight we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Remember this, Cephas is another name for Peter, okay? The Apostle Peter. You've probably heard about Peter if you've been around Christian stuff at all. Um, so Peter and James and John are kind of the three leading uh, apostles and now leaders of the Jewish part of the church, and they're all in Jerusalem. Paul is now talking about a time when Peter came to Antioch, not a small little city. It's actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And when Peter came, uh, Paul had to get in his face. And that's what we're going to read about tonight. So if you want to follow along. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let me pray, and then I'll seek to help us understand this passage tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that there are things worth um, getting people's face about. And uh, help us to thus see the beauty of the gospel and what a big deal it is when it's undermined. We pray that you send your spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, I think that if, you, if, you, if you're the kind of person that grew up in a nice southern church where everybody just smiles a lot, this may be like a little shocking thing. Well, I opposed him to his face. That doesn't sound like what we do in church. I mean, some of you may have grown up in churches where that happens all the time. But in the South, there are a lot of churches um, where it's probably more true, like Flannery O'Connor once said, they avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. Or Jack Miller, the guy that started Surge, the group that we're going to go do this trip with spring break, uh, used to say, niceness will kill a church. Everybody's just nice. So some of you might even think, well, that's kind of weird, you know, that, that, that one apostle would oppose somebody else right to their face in public. Paul is not nice to Peter. 
But that's okay, because Jack Miller was right. Niceness will kill a church. Maybe you've been part of a church like that, where there's all kinds of awful things going on, but nobody talks about it. It's not better, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. Some things deserve a life-giving, face-to-face rebuke. And it's not unchristian to say that. And I'll just add this. If you think or can't imagine staying in a relationship with someone who might have to say hard things to you, I'd encourage you to ponder why that might be. Now, it doesn't mean that all confrontations are right. This doesn't give us sort of a blank check to just tell off people, um, you know, especially if we don't have relationships with them. As a matter of fact, later in the letter to Galatians, Paul will say, if you see a brother or sister trapped in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. There's some important qualifications, and we'll talk about that uh, when we get to that section of the letter. Um, but we should avoid being peace fakers, but also peace breakers who just you know, feel like we need to tell people off all the time about everything. We need wisdom to be peacemakers, but you can't rule it out and say it's not Christian. Here Paul says, I had to oppose him to his face. And why? He says, because he stood condemned. Now that's important too. I'd say right off the bat, two, two lessons we need to learn. Sometimes confrontation needs to happen because bad stuff happens in churches. And sometimes Christian leaders are the ones doing the bad stuff and don't need to be put on a pedestal. If you're tempted to put Christian leaders on a pedestal, though I think there's a lot less of that these days, um, then this might be sort of a disturbing verse to you. But I think it's actually a very helpful verse for us to see that even the apostle Peter could go really astray and need to be confronted. He stood condemned, it says. I think sometimes I hear people talk about, oh, if we could only go back to the purity of the first century church. You ever hear anybody talk like that? Sometimes, people, there are whole denominations actually built on that idea, but I won't call them out today. But they, 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 I just wonder sometimes, have you actually read the New Testament? There's not really a letter to a church in the New Testament that there are not issues and problems. There are all kinds of big problems. Now you might have, if, you, if you've not been tracking with us, you know, when he talks about the circumcision party, that's not like a party where they're all gonna gather and be circumcised. That's like a political party, okay? So it's a people, it's a group of people. Remember I said this, you gotta understand this to understand Galatians, right? Yeah, that'd be a great time, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> now Gal Galatians is speaking into this issue. So in the earliest days of the church, in the earliest days of the church, you remember all 12 of Jesus' disciples were Jewish, okay? And in the early days of the church, almost all of the early converts to Christianity were Jewish. Some of those Jewish converts thought that it was important that they continue to practice their Judaism and their Jewish practices. As a matter of fact, for a long time, the Christians still went to the Jewish temple. We know that from the book of Acts. But there were other Jewish Christians who said, well, I, it's just kind of the food I've always grown up eating. It's the way I like to dress. It's cultural, but it doesn't like earn me any extra favor or special privileges with God. So there were two different groups of Jewish Christians who kind of saw their Jewishness in different ways. 
But as long as they're all practicing the same cultural practices, there's not going to be a big battle about it. But as soon as Gentiles come into the church, well, some of the Jews are like, oh, that's cool. That's their cultural practice. This is ours. But some of them were like, no, 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 no. For them to be truly pleasing to God, Paul, you got to tell them they need to be circumcised. They need to eat certain foods. And in the instance, in this situation, they need to be separated when we eat. Now, why was that? Well, it's because Gentiles did not follow all the laws of ritual cleansing that the Jews did. And the Jews had all these laws that they had to practice. It was also true that the Gentiles sometimes ate meat that was sacrificed to idols, things that the Jews would never do. So if you basically rub shoulders with Gentiles as a Jewish believer, then you are going to potentially become unclean. So Jews and Gentiles didn't eat together, right? But in Christ, that division was wiped away. And, and Paul and the other apostle has agreed on this. We talked about this last week. Paul went up to Jerusalem. He met with the other apostles. They shook on it. They said, yes, we all agree the Gentiles do not need to be Jewish to be fully pleasing to God. They don't need to adopt these cultural practices um, from this other culture. Just like saying, like, you know, my African-American brothers in the PCA, which is our denomination, don't need to sing 16th century Scottish psalm tunes to be fully pleasing to God. There's all kinds of practical, relevant applications for this idea. And it's a very important idea that Christianity does not bring one pure cultural expression of the gospel, but it's lived out in different ways with different people groups around the world. It's actually the most culturally flexible religion in the world, rightly understood. It is, but it often isn't practiced that way because people so often think that their cultural practices are superior to others because they think they're superior to others. It's very easy for us to put uh, sort of righteousness into our cultural practices, and that's what's going on here. So um, we see from this little section, like I said, confrontation is sometimes necessary rather than keeping peace at all costs. And I will just say this, we don't actually see in this passage, Paul doesn't say, and thank goodness Peter repented. Doesn't actually say that. We don't know what happened. But I will say this, later Paul writes in some other letters that are chronologically later, and he commends Peter, like in 2 Corinthians. And Peter, in a later letter that he wrote, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, says that Paul's letters are scripture. I don't know if you know that, that, that Peter actually calls Paul's writings scripture. They didn't just eventually evolve to that kind of being, like you might have been told uh, somewhere along the line. No, Peter recognized Paul's letters as scripture, and Paul actually quotes the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy as scripture. So even at the end of the New Testament era, the idea that these things are scripture is already being recognized. All right. Um, but we also see that church leaders can fail, and sometimes in huge ways, that wreak havoc on a whole church. You see here, like Peter's hypocrisy affects a whole bunch of people. That's part of why it's a big deal. So what do we learn from the fact that this actually happened? Confrontation sometimes is necessary 
and even Christian leaders sometimes fail. And I know um, for some of you, you've probably experienced that. And I'll just say, few hurts are as painful as church hurts. It's true. And, you know, I know some of the stories in this room. I don't know all of them. But if that's something that you would love to talk about and unpack, um, I'm here. We can talk, you know, so can the rest of our staff. Um, because sometimes, like, the parents are involved and the kids are just sort of, like, kind of left to wonder what's going on and not always um, even involved in reconciliation that maybe happened. Um, all right, second point. First is what should we learn from the fact that this happened? Second is what can we learn from the reason why Paul involved himself in this, in this confrontation? And then we're going to learn, I think, some really helpful things from how Paul did this confrontation. All right? So why did Paul do it? Why did Paul feel the need to do it? A couple things. Peter's conduct was public. And it was at a big, influential church. Remember I said Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's not some backwater kind of place. So it's a really big deal that Peter, one of the pillars, one of the leaders of the church, is doing this. And as you see, his conduct was hypocritical, but it was also influential. Right? It was leading others astray. Even Barnabas. Now, you may not know why that's kind of a big deal, but Barnabas, his name literally means son of encouragement. And God had used him in particular to encourage the Gentiles. And now even he has flipped. The Greek word for hypocrite is one for putting on a mask. And it highlights there's a real contradiction between Peter was what he was saying with his conduct that was going against what he claimed to believe. And that's why Paul says what he says at the very end of the passage I read. So, so let's jump into that. Peter's conduct went against the gospel that they had all agreed upon. That was back in the first part of chapter two. Peter, Paul basically goes to Jerusalem and says, this is the gospel that I'm preaching. Are we on the same page? And he was a little nervous because if the other apostles said, no, we're not quite sure of that, that was going to be a really big deal. But they didn't. They all said, yes, we're all on the same page. And so he has that background, but now Peter is undoing it. And why that's a big deal is because of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 about the purposes of God. Peter's hypocrisy, guys, was literally undermining what God intended to do in the gospel through Christ. This is not a little deal. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 about the mystery that had been hidden, but now that Jesus has come has finally been revealed. And here's what it is, that God might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, in place of Jews and Gentiles who hated one another, Christ is now going to reconcile human beings to God, and in reconciling us to God, they're going to be brought closer together to create one new humanity. As a matter of fact, sometimes the early church, the people called them a third race, 
Because where you had Jews and Gentiles, they didn't know how to fit the Christians into that category. They were sometimes regarded as a third race. And it fits with what Paul is saying here. God intended to make one new humanity through reconciling Jews and Gentiles to God, and in doing so, bring them together as well. So what Peter's doing, saying that I can't eat with you Gentiles as a Jew, is basically undermining the very purpose for which Jesus came. And beyond that, Peter knew better. This must have been so disheartening to Paul. I don't know if you remember the story, but it's in Acts chapter 10. You can go read it later. But Peter receives a vision from God of a sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals that Jews were forbidden from eating. And he hears a voice saying, rise, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And he refuses. And he hears the voice three times. And then he wakes up, and this guy from Cornelius's house, Cornelius is not a Jewish name, it's a Gentile name, comes and says, will you come preach the gospel to us? Tell us about these things about Jesus. And he realizes God is wanting me to go speak to these Gentiles. Now, he should have understood that already because there is, of course, that place in the Gospels where it says, and Jesus, in saying this, declared all foods clean. The clean laws were pointing, pointing, like I said last week, this quote from Tim Keller, worship is not a come-as-you-are party. You need to be clean to be in the presence of God. And what God was teaching his people through the clean laws and all these ritual uh, practices was that lesson. But when Jesus came, the one who all of those laws were pointing to, the need for cleaning, and now he's come and has cleansed us from our sins, as we've heard in the assurance of pardon, those clean laws now have done their job. And they don't need to keep being obeyed. Jesus had said that. Peter had gotten this vision, and he did go to Cornelius' house, and he preached the gospel, and what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, and they began to speak in tongues. Now, you may think that every group in the book of Acts speaks in tongues. That's actually not true. There's three groups of people that speak in tongues in Acts. Chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Jewish believers have the tongues. Pentecost is the festival of first fruits. And what it is, is God showing a reversal of the Tower of Babel. That rather than people being scattered, now they're going to be united in Christ. And so the next group that ends up speaking in tongues is not the next group of Jews that believe. Doesn't say that that happened to them. It's these Gentiles. And the, and the, the apostles understand. The apostles understand. Look at Acts 10, 45 through 47. They understand the point. And the believers from among the circumcised... So the Jewish believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. It took a lot of convincing for these Jewish Christians to believe that Gentiles could be on equal footing with them in the kingdom of God. God had to give Peter a vision and then the Gentiles responded to the gospel and then the spirit came down to them and they spoke in tongues like it happened to the Jews. And they say, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. It's only one other group in the book of Acts that speaks in tongues. And it's some apostles of John the Baptist who'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. So it's important that you understand the purpose 
for which these tongues were given. It was to help the Jews understand that everybody had equal standing before God. That's why it's such a big deal that Peter, it's like he's forgotten all of this stuff. He's forgotten all of this. And it's a pattern of behavior. It's not a one-time slip-up, right? Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That means he was eating regularly. That was his regular practice. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Not just once. He's changed his practice. It's a pattern of behavior. Like I said, later Paul will say, if someone's trapped in a sin, and a pattern is more a trapped in a sin kind of thing, then you might need to confront them though there's still some other qualifications which we'll talk about when we get to that. Um, one other thing to think about, in the early church, taking communion, the Lord's Supper, was something that involved eating as well. And so it's possible that this separation even extended to not taking communion with the Gentile believers. And again, that word, commun- we commune with God, as his people together. So again, undermining so many central things by what might seem like not that big a deal. Of course, if you've ever you know, walked into the cafeteria and not had anybody to sit with, you know, maybe it can seem like a bigger deal. You know, who sits with me and who won't sit with me, right? But this is a much bigger deal than that. This is literally undermining the gospel, right? And it's a gospel freedom issue. Um, comparable to what we talked about last week, where Paul said, I refuse to have Titus, who was not Jewish, be circumcised. But some false brothers came in to spy out our freedom in Christ, and I had to oppose them for the sake of the gospel. So it's a regular thing that keeps trying to happen as people keep trying to add things, add extra rules to what it means to be a Christian. And it still happens today all kinds of things that people add to the purity of the gospel. Well, what are we gonna learn from how Paul did it? And this I think is, is really so, oh, I'm just so glad he, he, he recorded this for us. Why doesn't Paul just say, Peter, stop being a racist? Stop being a racist. Because Paul knows that he has to get at the root issue for real change to happen, real change. And so what Paul says is you're not walking in line or walking in step with the truth of the gospel. That's a fascinating phrase. That means, and this is the way Tim Keller puts it, that means that the gospel, the good news, what that word means, the gospel has a truth to it that affects how we live. And we can live in a way that may seem religious, and yet is not in line with the truth of the gospel. And in fact, may even be contradicting the truth of the gospel in the way we lived. And that means that racism is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's ultimately a worship issue. It's not just an education or lack of education issue. It's not just a breaking the rules issue. Though I'm sure all of those play into it, There's more to it than that. And that's why Paul analyzes Peter's racism, which is basically treating the Gentiles like they're inferior as a hugely important thing. 
Again, he doesn't say, Peter, don't treat them as inferiors because it's going against the rules, even though it is against the rules. God's law does forbid it. But he relates Peter's response in shrinking back from eating with Gentiles to the gospel. He gets at the core issue and is able to distinguish between the symptoms and the real disease. And because of that, he can point to a real cure. Sometimes I think we hear diagnoses about ourselves or others. I'm not against diagnoses, but sometimes they can just sort of make you feel like you're trapped. And sometimes make you feel just like you're, you're sick, but never connect to, well, how are you responding? What are you doing with God in the midst of this? Well, what Paul does here, I think, helps us a lot to show that beneath all of our sin is a kind of self-justification that has to be recognized and dealt with for real change to happen. I'm not talking about all suffering by any means, okay? But those who follow the rules and those who flaunt the rules, Christianity says, are both doing it to avoid the gospel of grace. There are two ways to avoid the gospel of grace. The one is to say, I can keep the rules, so I don't really need a savior. Oh, it's nice to have Jesus on my side. Maybe he can kind of cover, you know, what's lacking, but I'm really doing a pretty good job. At least I'm better than her and I'm, you know, way better than him, you know? So we do that kind of thing, right? We try and keep the rules. Sometimes we even make up extra rules so that we can feel better than other people. And, and, and then there are those who say, well, yeah, I'm sick of that. <laughs> I'm just going to make up my own rules. There are two ways to basically avoid Jesus. One is to think that you don't need him because you can keep the rules. And the other is to say, who the hell gets to make up the rules? Like, why does he get to make up the rules? I'm going to do what I want. And what's fascinating, especially at a place like Belmont, is how often you see people who've grown up trying to keep the rules and, and trying to keep the rules, but feeling more and more bitter towards God, particularly if life hasn't turned out the way they hoped and they thought they should deserve because they've kept the rules so well and they didn't do this and they didn't do that like some of their friends, right? This is a theme in the Psalms as well. How is it that the wicked prosper? And yet my life isn't turning out like I had hoped. Something gotta be wrong with God or there's something wrong with me. Maybe I didn't do a good enough job and I need to beat myself up. But sometimes the people that have kind of grown up that way and thought that way, they just get to college and they're like, okay, I'm just sick of this. I'm done with this. No more. No more of this trying to please this God who never seems satisfied. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And sometimes what's interesting is sometimes I'll get calls from parents whose kids have maybe went off the rail and they think what they really need is a kind of a kick in the pants from a pastor figure. I'm like, chances are they probably never really understood the heart of God and the gospel of grace. Because this is actually, this is actually the prodigal, the parable son that's lived out. And it happens all the time where you have the one son who basically says to his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now and I'm going to go do what I want with it. And then when that son comes back, and the father has a party, not to celebrate the son, the party is for the father. The party is for the father, and the older son refuses to enter into the party 
And he even says to his father, all my life I've slaved for you. You never gave me a fatted calf. But do you understand, actually what the older son does is more offensive because he refuses to celebrate his father finding the son that was lost. And that parable ends without us knowing whether the older son will go into the party. Because Jesus told that parable, it says in Luke 15, to some Pharisees who were trusting in their own righteousness and criticizing him for doing what? Eating with the wrong people. See that theme? It comes up all the time. Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees are like, no way, shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus is like, I think you've forgotten the whole basis of your relationship with God. You've actually even forgotten the origin story of Israel. Do you know the name Israel was given to a guy named Jacob after he was on the run, did some bad stuff. His name literally means the deceiver. And God chases him down and wrestles with him and changes his name to Israel. So the Pharisees basically think that they're these high and mighty people. And Jesus is like, wait, you're looking down your nose at these people. Do you not remember the origin story of Israel? Do you not remember who you are? You were the deceiver who God had to chase down when you were running as far away as you could be. You're more the prodigal, but you're acting like the older brother. You need to come into the Father's joy. So Paul is showing that that dynamic is what's going on in Peter's heart. And it's a turning away from the gospel of grace and the idea that I can be accepted into God's presence solely and fully through what Jesus did. Tim Keller puts it this way. There's an old, uh, actually one of the original church historians, a guy named Tertullian, said this, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification, which means being beautiful in God's sight because Jesus did everything required to earn the smile of God and gives it to you as a gift. That's what justification means. The doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Tertullian meant that there were two basic false ways of thinking, each of which steals the power and the distinctiveness and the joy of the gospel from us by pulling us off the gospel line, out of step with the gospel to one side or the other. The two errors are very powerful because they represent the natural tendency of the human heart and mind. These thieves can be called moralism or legalism on the one hand and hedonism or relativism on the other hand. Another way to put it is this, the gospel, the true gospel opposes religion and irreligion. They're actually two sides of the same coin. They're two ways of saying, I don't need a savior and I don't really need Jesus. And what happens, what happens when we buy this? Well, we lose the joy of the gospel. Now, you may think that you're doing a pretty good job keeping the rules, but there'll never be an explosion of joy that comes like from that song, um, you know, could my zeal, no respite, no, could my tears forever flow. You know that, that hymn we sang, Rock of Ages? You know the original name of that hymn? 
It's kind of a long name. It was originally titled by Augustus Toplady, A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? But it's important to understand. He basically said, this is the cry you'll need to live. This is the cry you need when you die. You will never get to a place where you've been such a good Christian that you'll be able to say to God, hey, I did a pretty good job, didn't I? No, it's always enter into my joy because I look at you and I see the beauty of Christ that's been credited to your account. That's the only hope. That's the only hope. You see, unless we see how our sin, like racism or any kind of thing that we feel like makes us superior, is really an attempt at self-justification because we feel empty and dirty, we will never have power to change. Once you see something as sin, and again, not everything and every problem in your life is sin, but once you identify, oh, this really is self kind of justification, there's hope. There's hope because we know what to do with sin. We go to Jesus. Sin is dealt with through the gospel and the gospel is more than sufficient for any and all sin. Paul shows Peter how his racism is really at its heart an attempt at self-salvation, trusting in Christ plus his culture and invites him to the gospel sanity of repentance. Paul doesn't just say repent of being a racist, but repent of not believing the gospel and pursuing a kind of self-salvation. Again, Tim Keller says it well. He says, Paul says the roots of, resist, of racism are a resistance to the gospel salvation. In other words, racism is a continuation of works righteousness in a part of our lives. It's a failure to bring our relationships with other cultures into line with grace salvation. Racism arises because our hearts still oppose grace and seek to find ways of self-justification. We need to devise ways to feel superior to others. And one of the ways we do this is through making our culture an idol. Extreme cases of this result in militarism and fascism. But to some degree, all of us will try to use our culture and our race to feel superior to others. If you're a member of a racial majority, your race's cultural pride is fairly easy to see. If you're a member of a racial minority, it's a bit more complex, but it happens when you begin to think, I'm more noble than any of you of the dominant race. I've suffered more and I'm not an oppressor like you. We can find ways to justify everything in our hearts and feel superior to somebody. And it's not just a first century issue. My friend uh, Micah Edmondson, the pastor at Koinonia said this, for Peter to give preference to the Jews was to participate in legalism that expressed itself through ethnocentrism. Evangelicals are good at spotting legalism when someone says Christians don't dance. But do we recognize it in the heart that says my people are better than yours? And Paul explains this further, verses 15 to 17, when he says your actions are literally preaching a false gospel because you're telling Gentiles that Jesus cleansing of you is not enough to have full status in God's kingdom. The way you live, Paul's saying, preaches a gospel. But is it the true gospel that you're saved by grace? What would people believe you believe by the way you live? Would they say, yes, I am sure that she believes she's been saved by grace alone? Or they say, well, no, I think she probably feels like God treats her special because she's smarter and better than other people. 
the way we live preaches some kind of gospel. And Paul uh, understood that. Only the gospel, which invites us to turn from all forms of self-salvation, even bearing ourselves in shame, hoping that God won't have the heart to punish us for real sin, can be a kind of self-salvation. I wanted to close with this, uh, this illustration. My wife was like, what about the Barbie movie? Is there like an illustration from the Barbie movie? Yeah, I think so. Um, especially that monologue, you know the monologue I'm talking about. When we saw that movie um, with my wife and my daughter, who's a sophomore in college, and she was just ugly crying. And I, and I was too, but I was like, man, what is going on here? Um, I, was, I was looking this up to try and get the exact wording of this, and uh, I found this article in Town & Country magazine. And, and I, think it, it, I think it really gets at this, that you can't live trying to keep the rules. Not even just the Christian rules, but whatever the rules, especially the society's rules. Because the rules keep changing. And they're impossible anyway, right? So Town & Country says this, one of the highlights of the Barbie movie comes in the second half when Gloria, America Ferrara, delivers a monologue on the impossible double standards of being a woman. And if you've seen it, you'll remember this. The monologue, this is what Ferrara told Vanity Fair, was one of the first things Greta mentioned to me before I even read the script. She said, I wrote this monologue for Gloria, and I've always imagined you saying this. While that was flattering, she says, it also felt like pressure in the nicest way. I read the monologue and it hit me as powerful and meaningful. It also felt like, wow, what a gift as an actor to get to deliver something that feels so cathartic and truthful. But it also felt like this pivotal moment that I obviously didn't want to mess up. There was a little bit of healthy pressure around it. It took them two days to shoot that scene. And Ferrara says she probably did 30 to 50 full runs of that speech from top to bottom. Her favorite line, she says, is the always be grateful line, which she worked on together with Gerwig. And during her performance, Gerwig tells The Atlantic, when America was giving her beautiful speech, I was just sobbing. And then I looked around, I realized everybody's crying on the set. The men are crying too, because they have their own speech they feel they can't ever give, you know? And they have their own twin tightrope, which is also painful literally impossible to be a woman. You're so beautiful and so smart, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to be thin, but not too thin, and you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas and on and on. And it's literally impossible to keep the rules, right? But so is trying to make up your own rules. Because I hope you picked up on the fact that Ken doesn't enjoy just getting to do whatever he thinks is going to make him happy. Dojo Ken is not happy either. He's kind of miserable. <laughs> need to hear from the Creator to find out what we were made for. And I'll tell you this, Isaiah 54, 5, the prophet Isaiah says this, and it is literally for me maybe my favorite verse in the Bible that puts all this stuff together. Your maker is your husband. 
And, and the problem sometimes is the people that think they have to keep the rules and think they can keep the rules, they're like, okay, God made us and he told us how to live and dang it, we better do it. And then there are other people who say, ah, God doesn't really care. He's full of grace. He's, he'll just marry us anyway. The fact is, the one who made you and said, this is how I made you to live is the one who marries himself to you. And he won't keep you, he won't let you stay in dehumanizing situations because he made you to be beautiful. And he's working to do that work, right? But when we turn away from the gospel, we turn away from the glorious gospel, we lose all power to really change. We become miserable, we become morbidly introspective and bitter. Only the gospel can set us free. And that's what we're gonna talk about some more next week. Let me pray as the worship team comes forward.